Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the Drinks with Allie podcast, where we're talking everything from red, red wine to pina coladas. I'm Allie, and as always, I'm your host. Today is Wednesday, January 13th. This is episode 12, and it's a Wine Wednesday, aka the best day of the week. This week, we're talking all about Chardonnay. Now, due to some technical issues, today is actually Thursday, January 14th. Uh, so we're a day late. Sorry, guys. I am so sorry about that. I really didn't mean for that to happen, but it is what it is when you live on a farm and you try and record a podcast. Now, I'm not going to lie, guys. I'm not a huge Chardonnay fan. I know. I know. It's one of the base grapes in my favorite style of wine, aka champagne. But I cut my teeth in the era of full-bodied, overly oaky, buttery bomb Chardonnays. So it's not surprising that I really don't like Chardonnay. However, having grown up a bit and tasted a huge myriad of wines, so, or I have now tasted a huge myriad of wines, so I can admit that there are some that I've enjoyed and I can appreciate both the grape and the wide variety of styles that it can come in. Today we'll cover some history of the grape, places it grows, some different styles, and a couple of really classic regions to look out for when you're looking for a bottle. Um, And these are bottles and regions that you should be able to get a hold of anywhere in the world. Um, So we won't just stick to very specific tiny producers. I'm going to give you more of like a check out this region or this sub-region as opposed to this specific winery. Um, because I find that's a little bit easier for everybody to get a hold of something that way. Alrighty, let's jump on into Chardonnay. So much like Pinot Noir, Chardonnay is considered an OG um, or original gangster grape. And like Pinot Noir, much of its history is muddy, convoluted, and half romantic legend mixed with fact. So it can be a little bit hard to discern what's actually going on, where it's really from, and who's telling the most truth. Um, there are vineyard owners, owners sorry, in both Lebanon and Syria that claim the grapes' ancestry can be traced back to the vineyards in the era. Yes, they grow grapes in the Middle East. There are grapes growing just about everywhere in the world um, that f- kind of fall between the 55th parallel and the 40th parallel might be the 35th parallel. Um, so there's a, there's a large range of areas that grow grapes. And definitely in the Middle East, we see a lot of ancient grapes. We see a lot of vineyards that are places that were vineyard sites that are now being replanted and being brought back to life. So not overly surprising that there are grapes in Lebanon and Syria. So the romantic story is that from there... So from the Middle East, the Crusaders carried this grape back to France as they returned home from the wars. Now, there weren't a lot of Crusaders that were from France, so I'm assuming they stopped off and then continued on, et cetera, et cetera. Now we know that the Romans would have been there before that, so there was already grapes growing in France. So again, half romantic legend, half romantic or half fact. It's a little muddy. Nobody really knows for sure. Another story states, though, that the vine originated from an ancient indigenous or native vine found in Cyprus. Again, in the Middle East, right? Right next to Turkey, 
So a little bit coming from the same area, but a little bit of a different twist on the story. We don't really know. Now, our friends over at University of California at Davis, which is the big wine school in California, um, and their professor Meredith, um, who have studied grape genetics and the grape genomes for rather a long time, tell us that Chardonnay's parents are Pinot Noir. Remember that very prolific father grape. Um, Pinot Noir is credited with being the father of lots and lots and lots and lots of grapes. And a white grape called Gouet Blanc, which is all but extinct. Um, It grows in a very, very small handful of places, including um, the research center at Geisenheim in Germany. So you're seeing it more as a study of a grape versus a grape that's being grown for commercial use. Um, I believe at Geisenheim, they only have five or six rows of it. It's very small planting of it uh, and not made into a lot of wine. So historically, Chardonnay has been growing in Burgundy for hundreds of years. It showed up in Burgundy sometime around the 18th century, so 1700s. Um, So just kind of after they kicked Gamay Noir out, they had a lot of Pinot Noir, then they brought in Chardonnay. Uh, So a little bit of a latecomer to the party in Burgundy. Uh, In Burgundy, though, it is the dominant white grape. So it's the number one planted white grape in Burgundy. Um, But it still lags behind Pinot Noir three to one. So there are three plantings of Pinot Noir for every one planting of Chardonnay. Definitely the outsider, even within Burgundy, which is where it's considered to be the classic white varietal or its most classic spot. It pops up in Champagne in the mid-19th century, so the 1800s, where Chardonnay quickly establishes itself as the dominant grape for sparkling wine production, both in Champagne and around the world. But it definitely loves Champagne's climate, Um, so it it takes off there really well. In 1882, the first Chardonnay is planted in California in the Livermore Valley. This is, of course, the first documented planting that we have. There are definitely um, rumors of older plantings. We've lost those vineyards, though, um, that, and they haven't been able to come back. 1882 is definitely like the first major planting that still survived for quite a while. I'm pretty sure there's still Chardonnay grown on that site, but I couldn't, couldn't find that for true fact. Now, for Southern Hemisphere Chardonnays, so that's everybody that grows below the equator um, and has opposite harvest times to us. So in the Northern Hemisphere, we harvest in September, October. Down in the Southern Hemisphere, they harvest in uh, April, May, kind of in there. So they're currently in their growing season right now. So um, the first plantings recorded plantings again in Australia happened in the 1920s. Uh, During the same time period, we also see it being planted in South Africa. Um, So there are plantings in South Africa as well, just not as much. Um, But it's not until 1982 that it's planted in Chile or 1996 where we see it planted in Argentina. Um, Now Canada would fall kind of, I would say, mid to late 80s, um, especially in Ontario and then kind of carried out to BC after that. 
So even though all of these regions grow Chardonnay and grow quite a bit of Chardonnay, it's a relatively new varietal for most of these places to plant. And it's pretty young in comparison to say something like Pinot Noir or Cabernet Franc, but it's still not as young as something like Vidal. So Chardonnay currently holds the title of second most planted white grape, white wine grape varietal in the world. It lags behind Ariane, which is the most planted great white grape varietal. Um, and Ariane is used for sherry production. So it's planted extensively in Spain. It's mostly used for sherry. Um, and fun fact, there are now, this is from a fact from 2016, so there could be a little bit more, a little bit less uh, plantings in the world. There are currently, or there were, 210,000 hectares of Chardonnay planted worldwide, where Ariane leads them by just a little bit more at 218,000 hectares of planted vineyard. So there's a, a big gap there. 8,000 hectares is quite a bit of space, but you could see how Chardonnay could quickly catch up to Ariane and even pass it. Statistically, there are as many styles of Chardonnay, or stylistically, my apologies, stylistically, there are many styles of Chardonnay as there are places that grow Chardonnay. And in fact, many, many wineries and many winemakers will make multiple styles, each vintage of Chardonnay, in order to fill the need in their market. So you could have a winemaker that makes a sparkling, they make an unoak Chardonnay, they make an oaky Chardonnay, all within the same vintage, all from the same winery, and all very excellent. They're just filling different niches within their market. Um, and that just comes from knowing your market really well. So styles range from crisp and minerally or fruit driven, so completely unoaked, more along the lines of a Riesling or a Sauvignon Blanc, to toasty, nutty, and full of bubbles, as with a Blanc de Blanc or a sparkling wine made entirely from white grapes or Chardonnay grapes, to creamy, oaky, and buttery shards that have seen oak aging and probably, possibly, barrel fermentation as well. I've even seen some late harvest Chardonnays. So a late harvest isn't quite as sweet as ice wine, but it's definitely sweeter than a table wine. Uh, late harvest tends to go through one or two frost cycles versus those ice wines like we talked about that go through five, six, seven, eight frost cycles. Um, now, an interesting note on that super oaky uh, butter bomb Chardonnay that style of Chardonnay didn't become popular until the late 1980s, especially in the U.S. So it's a relatively new style of wine compared to the more fruit-driven, barrel-aged wines that we see from Burgundy and that are starting to get, become more popular again now. For kind of classic examples and regions that you should look out for. We will, of course, start with Burgundy. Um, so there's a huge, not a huge number, but there are quite a number of different styles of Burgundy that you can look out for. And 
there's everything from village to premier cru to grand peru so there are several tiers of wine within the classification of burgundy so this is where talking to that helpful wine person might really come in handy for us so one of the first regions that we have is called Macones. So M-A-C-O-N-N-A-I-S. So you'd be looking for a bottle labeled Macon Village, M-A-C-O-N hyphen V-I-L-L-A-G-E-S. Uh, it's a really stony region, so you're getting a lot more minerality to the wines. A little further south, um, but within the Macones is the subregion of Puy Fusse, so P-O-U-I-L-L-Y hyphen F-U-I-S-S-E, uh, which is a great spot to bargain hunt in Burgundy. Uh, Puy Fusse is next, right next door to the Cote d'Or, which is where we see most of our really high-end Burgundies come from. Um, so again, they're a little bit more fruit-driven. They do have a lot of oak aging to them, but they're a little bit more elegant. Um, and like I said, they're a little bit more affordable when you're looking for a wine. There's also Chablis, uh, which is the northeast end of Burgundy. These ones are great with oysters and most seafoods, um, and but they tend to be a little bit more expensive. They kind of bridge the gap between something like Cote d'Or or Cote de Bone and um, the Maconas or Puyfuse. So there are, there's three options there from Burgundy, California. So California has so much Chardonnay. It's crazy how much Chardonnay they grow there. Personally, I like either the Sonoma Coast or the Russian River Valley areas. These areas have some older vines, which tend to grow better fruit. Better fruit gives you better wine. Um, the old adage of what you put in is what you get out. Um, plus the fog rolls off the Pacifics in the morning, preventing the grapes from over ripening, which really helps to keep them a little bit uh, kind of more elegant, I guess is how we would describe them. They're not as fruity. They're not, they don't taste over ripe. So that difference between an apple and an overripe apple or a pear and an overripe pear, there's a very large difference there. And one that's perfectly ripened is definitely more exciting to taste and more pleasant to taste than one that's overripe. Um, so Hawke's Bay area in New Zealand also makes some great cool climate Chardonnays. So they definitely don't have the heat ripening that somewhere like California does a little bit more stylistically to what we see here in Nova Scotia or um, even in Burgundy as well. Personally, um, my two favorite uh, producers from there are Villa Maria and Temata. Temata is spelled T-E um, and the new word M-A-T-A. But that's where most of the ones that I can get are from. There's a ton of different Hawks Bay um, wineries and producers. There's just hardly any of them that are imported into my market. So those kind of are the ones that I look for. From Australia, you're going to look for wines from the Adelaide Hills, the Yarra Valley. So Yarra spelled Y-A-R-R-A. -R -R -A, and the Margaret River. 
These are kind of your most consistent producers. Again, they're not over-ripening. They don't have to worry about um, fruit being underripe or overripe. It's the most consistent growing areas in Australia for Chardonnay. Um, and they can really have some bargain wines there as well. And of course, I couldn't leave you without talking champagne. Come on, guys. I love sparkling wine and champagne in particular. So now the vast majority of champagnes and sparkling wines from around the world are blends of Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, especially if they're traditional method. You can also throw in a little Pinot Meunier. Um, those are the three grapes that are allowed in champagne production. So if you want one that's just Chardonnay, 100% Chardonnay in your bottle, you're going to look for the words Blanc de Blanc. So that's spelled B-L-A-N-C space D-E space B-L-A-N-C-S, so Blanc de Blanc, on the label. Um, you're going to find that just under where it says Chardonnay or Champagne, sorry, um, and same if you're looking for sparkling wine from anywhere in the new world. If you look under the producer where it says sparkling wine, it often says Blanc de Blanc or Blanc de Noir. That's a white wine made from a black or a red grape. Um, so if you can't discern that on the label, talk to that super friendly, handy dandy wine or liquor store employee because they're going to be the ones that know. And they're going to be able to say, yep, this one right here is a Blanc de Blanc, or this one here is a Blanc de Blanc. This one here is a cava that's made 100% from white grapes, um, though most cava isn't made from Chardonnay. But there we have it. A few different examples of some great bottles and some great areas to look for. Like I said, I don't like getting into specific producers because it can be so hard. I know personally... You know, people recommend, oh, you know, say in somewhere like Bordeaux, Chateau Latour is a great example. You should always, you should get your hands on a Chateau Latour. You can't find them here. And if you can, they're several thousand dollars. It's not something I have the ability to output at this time. So with that, we'll wrap up another episode. I am so grateful for you guys for being here. If you are liking the show, if you could hit subscribe or follow um, over on iTunes, that would be great. I'm trying to figure out how to get uh, the podcast onto Stitcher and Spotify and all those other services. It's coming. I will get there. I'm not the most tech-savvy person, so this is taking me a little bit longer than it probably should. If you have a question, comment, or a show topic that you'd love to hear us talk about, I would really appreciate if you could drop me a line by email at drinkswithallie at gmail.com. So D-R-I-N-K-S-W-I-T-H-A-L-I at gmail.com. You can pop over to the website, drinkswithallie.com. So D-R-I-N-K-S-W-I-T-H-A-L-I.com. And you can either fill in the contact form, which comes directly to my email, or you can leave a comment on this blog or on this podcast blog post. You can send me a direct message, whether it's on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, MeWe. I'm not sure that you can send me a message through the Spotify playlist. And you can also send me one through Pinterest because we're on all of those social medias, all of them at Drinks with Allie. And with that, guys, fill your glass with something tasty. I'll talk to you soon. 
Cheers, everyone.